today on Ag News Daily. The, he heard of a, you know, a village basically growing corn without nitrogen fertilizer, and this corn was growing 20 feet tall, you know, and producing. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here. It's a Friday on the Ag News Daily Podcast, and I am joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how are you? I'm pretty good, Mike. How about you? I, I'm, you know what? I'm okay. Here's my story. The county is out uh, cutting down trees in the roadside ditches, which is great. You know, it gets those uh, mulberry trees and the scrub cedars out of the way. It's a good thing. Okay. My road, the mile that we live on out here in the country, has maybe eight trees on it. And uh, the county got started. Uh, They were literally right across from my house earlier today. And uh, it's been about four or five hours, and they've made it a half a mile. I think they've chopped down three trees that were maybe eight feet tall. So you're just mad because they're slow? I'm just impressed, honestly. You know, you can tell it's a Friday job. They're going to, you know, make it go the whole day on Friday. (laughs) Oh, so you're impressed with their um, aptitude to make it last longer. Yes, their ingenuity. It's it's Mm -hmm. very impressive. That sounds like something you'd do. I would probably, yeah. Yeah, I suppose. (laughs) But it is Friday, and I'm not lollygagging around. I've been reading up on Ag News, Delaney, as I'm sure you have. Yes. What do you got for us? Well, unfortunately, Mike, we're not going to see the assistance package rolled out today. Secretary Sonny Perdue told reporters yesterday evening that the $12 billion aid package for farmers is going to have to be released on Monday now. So they said they're still on track to have it up and going right after Labor Day weekend and have people start filling out their payment papers on September 4th. But it was it's interesting to me, Mike. I was in Jefferson, Iowa last night speaking to a group of farmers and producers, and I had a lady come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I work for our local county FSA office, and I learned more tonight from you than what we've learned, and we haven't even been trained on how to fill out paperwork or do any of the computer software systems. It doesn't really sound like folks at the local county level are prepared to handle this, I'm sure, surge of people that are going to be coming into offices starting September 4th. Well, and I, I hope you told her that what we know is basically hearsay, you know, right. rumors that Absolutely. have been circulated down to D.C. Yeah. I mean, so far, the number of people who know what this is going to look like, I think, is one, and that's Sonny Perdue. Maybe President Trump. Oh, you think he's paying attention to know. what's going on? He, no, he You know, not. he delegates. That's what, that's what you do yeah. in business. Maybe our friend, uh, former Secretary of Iowa, Bill Northey knows. Yes, Bill would be the next on my list of, of who yeah. I think would know. So uh, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Hopefully they yeah. can get that rolled out without a whole lot of headaches and producers it's, can get uh, in there and get their money. Right. It, he did, Purdue did say, though, that dairy, pork, and soybeans will be, have been most dramatically affected and will probably get the most money out of that $12 billion payment program. Okay. It, you know, that's in line with those... Uh, rough estimates of payments we had of a buck something Mm -hmm. per bushel on beans and a penny on corn. Yes. All right. Well, we've got some news from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. The Kansas City Federal Reserve Bank is doing their annual conference in Jackson Hole. It kind of attracts the who's who of uh, 
financial wizards and journalists and so forth. And one of the people who went was uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell. And he talked and told everybody in attendance that the strength of the U.S. economy looks like it's going to continue. We are going to see continued reasons to increase interest rates, but no reason to move it along any faster. So we didn't see the market move that much today. It kind of breathed this sigh of relief. Nothing's going to change. Still expecting two interest rate hikes, small ones, one in December or one in September and one in December as we're uh, okay. looking down the road. Yeah, that's kind of what the Fed was already um, projecting. So. Yep, and today we just got confirmation, which is nice. Yeah, you know it's coming now. Mm-hmm. Plan ahead. Well, going on, I guess I'm going to take it back to trade and tariff discussions. I think I mentioned on the podcast a couple of weeks ago that Russia is, was considering offering China some acres to plant, uh, well, particularly soybeans on, but it looks like the Kremlin has announced this week that they are going to officially offer some 2.5 million acres of arable farmland to foreign investors for China to plant soybeans on in in uh, Russia. Hmm. So, uh, is anybody taking them up on it? I don't know yet. We just kind of got confirmation now. It sounds like they already have some interest in some of those acres. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if we've got any listeners who are uh, geography nerds and can tell us what kind of soil that is there mm-hmm. on the on the border and you know how well it would grow. I, I guess I don't know anything about that region. Would it be a good soybean producing area? I have no idea. I wouldn't think so. I thought um, the eastern part that touches China is kind of like. Siberia area, right? That's, that's what I was thinking. And I'm thinking, <laughs> boy, permafrost isn't isn't typically great uh, for a yeah. bean yield. But there must be, you know, there, there obviously is different places that we just yeah. aren't educated enough to know about, I suppose. Yeah, I guess. I guess. You know who is a good soybean grower, though, Delaney, besides the United States? Brazil. Yes, Brazil and Argentina. And I've got news on the Mercosur trade agreement with the EU. So this was something that I believe you talked about several months Mm -hmm. ago. The EU and uh, several South American countries make up a trade unit called Mercosur. They are trying to sign a free trade agreement, but they continue to run into roadblocks. Right now, those roadblocks are uh, beef, sugar, and the auto industry. Basically, the same things that are bedeviling NAFTA is causing trouble for this EU-Mercosur deal. And nobody really knows for sure when or if this deal is going to end up being signed. Hmm. Okay. Which, you know, should leave the door open for American imports into the EU, at least. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading something, and maybe I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but... Uh, soybean exports to the EU this year. Last year, in 2016, they were about 9% of total U.S. Uh, soybean production. This year, they're already at 37%. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's good so, news. It is. I mean, I know it's partially because U.S. soybeans have been so cheap, but... Yeah. But as long as they're getting sold, we're bringing yeah. down that carryout, which is always good news. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is, Mike. Well, let's see. As we As we continue to talk about trade discussions doesn't look like we're going to be seeing anything roll out today or tomorrow from NAFTA. 
either. So mm. uh, we kept speculating and the news was speculating that we might see some sort of formal agreement announced between the Mex- between Mexico and the U.S. And it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. Their economy secretary, Ildefonso Guajardo, is planning to stay in Washington this weekend, however, to continue discussions and, and hoping to wrap it up. But he said until China, until excuse me, Canada comes to the table, we're really not going to release anything. Huh. You know, and it wasn't just us and media speculating. Guajardo himself right. said it's potentially yeah. hours away, and that was three days ago. Doesn't look like that's going to be the case anymore. No, pretty good excuse to stay in D.C., though. I guess so. You know, maybe, like maybe he's just looking to get his room comped for the weekend or something, and then <laughs> yeah. he'll sign it oh. on Monday and we'll all be good. Okay, yeah, nice. Well, you nice, know, Mike. maybe. Okay. Anyway, I've got just a little piece of news here, something that happened earlier this week we didn't mention, and it affects the commodity markets. It affects the most heavily traded commodity on earth. Delaney, do you know what that is? Oil. Yes, indeed. And later this year, the Saudi Arabian government's company, Saudi Aramco, entirely owned by Saudi Arabia. It's why all the Arabian sheiks have yachts and, you know, Ferraris and so forth. They were going to do an initial public offering and sell 5% of that company on either the London Stock Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange. And that had folks really fired up about getting involved in the oil sector. And that maybe brought some money back into commodities. But earlier this week, they announced that that IPO has been put on hold indefinitely. No explanation as to why. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Well, Mike, we've got the Fed cattle on feed report coming out later this afternoon so we'll have to go through that on monday other than that i don't have a whole lot of other news so should we jump over into today's commodity market you know Delaney, i'm really excited yeah to talk to our interview today it's a very cool project about corn that's been discovered that may be a little more efficient potentially than what we've got today so yeah let's let's jump into that let's take a look at the markets and our markets are brought to us by our good friends at the zaner group remember folks you can put a marketing plan in place it's never too late in the growing season to take action give them a shout at 312-277-0050 or visit them on the web at zaner.com as we take a look at the markets today in the corn pit, the September contract was up one and three quarters at 348 and a half. The December contract also up one and three quarters to close at 362 and three quarters. In soybeans, we've got mixed trade with the September down a quarter at 841 and three quarters. November up a penny, finish at 855 even. In Chicago wheat, September contract weakness has continued all week in the Chicago wheat pit here. Uh, September contract down seven and a half cents at five fourteen and a half. December down five and a quarter to close the day at five thirty six and a half. Looking over at the livestock side in live cattle, we've got the August contract down a dollar seventy, closed at one oh six twenty five. The October down two oh two fifty, finished the week at one oh six seventy. In feeder cattle mixed trade, the August contract up seventeen and a half cents, finished at one forty nine twenty. The September down a dollar sixty seven fifty to close at 147.47.50. And in lean hogs, a little bit of strength today as we continue to mull those African swine fever cases over in China. The October contract up 60 cents, closed at 51.77.50. December up 35 cents to finish at 51.22 and a half. And let's finish out by taking a look at the dairy markets. Class 3 milk, August contract up 3 cents on the day at 15.03. September up 16 cents to close at 16. 
2021. Before we get to our conversation with Dr. Alan Van Dynes, let's get a word from our friends at Latham High Tech Seeds. I've got Phil Long, agronomy specialist for Latham High Tech Seeds, on the line with me today. And Phil, it sounds like a lot of folks have been seeing or possibly seeing some sudden death syndrome. How should they go about identifying if that's in their fields or not? Yeah, sure. There, there's a, this is the perfect time to be seeing it out there, you know, around that R5, R6 time period is when it really starts to show up. And, you know, it's got that intervenal chlorosis that comes out and turns into necrosis. Typically, leaves will start to fall off, too. Um, but really, the key diagnoser for it is, is, is pulling a plant and splitting the stem at the lower part of the, the stem. That's really when you can tell the difference if you split it apart and you see discoloration in the outside cortex tissue. That's where you'll be able to tell versus a brown stem rot, which the very center of the pith is going to actually be a brown and skeletalized. So those are the kind of the two key diagnostics between the two and, and not confusing one versus the other. Phil, if, if folks do find those in their fields, is there anything they can do once they find it or is it crops over from there? Yep, a lot of times they'll finish filling out uh, the best they can until the, the crop actually stops growing completely. It is a vascular, they're both vascular diseases, fungal diseases, so it'll eventually kill the plant. Um, there's nothing you can do other than and plan ahead, you know, for next year and something, plant, something like our, our ironclad soybean lines that have tolerances to those particular, uh, especially sudden death syndrome, most diseases, your best method going forward. All right, Phil. Thanks again. And folks, if you have any questions about sudden death syndrome or other agronomic questions, you can head to LathamSeeds.com or call 877-GO-LATHAM. Well, folks, today we are having a pretty cool conversation. A lot of us know that soybeans fix nitrogen into the soil, how neat would it be if a corn plant could do the same thing? Joining me today is Dr. Alan Van Dynes. He is the Associate Director of Plant Breeding at the Plant Breeding Center at the University of California, Davis. Dr. Van Dynes, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, my pleasure. Now, tell us a little bit about what you've been researching here and what your recent paper was about for corn that fixes nitrogen. Well, we've been working really for the last 10 years on a discovery from one of our collaborators, Dr. Howard Yana Shapiro, who now is the chief ag officer for Mars Incorporated, where he found this corn, or he heard of this corn growing really in the birthplace of corn in Oaxaca, Mexico. So this is where genetic diversity of corn, you know, is, is found. And the, he heard of a, a village basically growing corn without nitrogen fertilizer, and this corn was growing 20 feet tall, you know, and producing for a while. So until really a few years ago, we didn't have the tools to, to really verify this. And, um, you know, beginning about 2010, we start, you know, going into this. He says, yeah, here's the corn. We, we did the research, very systematic research to look at, you know, in the field, in the area, we looked at is there any nitrogen in the soil? And the answer was, it's fairly low. This corn is still growing, maybe 2,000 you know, uh, pounds to the acre, which is a lot of biomass. And we said, okay, how can this be? And so we did the studies. We measured, uh, you know, we did, I would say, very systematic studies to, to figure out, you know, is this corn somehow getting nitrogen from the air, like you mentioned, like soybean would, with the help of uh, bacteria. I was going to say, you know, that's that's the thing with soybeans. We've got the the bacteria that live in the roots. 
why doesn't that bacteria live in corn roots, you know, necessarily? How does that, I guess, taking it back to basics, uh, how does that work? Well, what we found is this corn has an adaptation. It has what we're calling aero roots. So it has roots, and of course it has roots on the ground, and it also has roots at every node. So every little swelling in the plant, if you want to call it, are the nodes. It produces these extra roots there. And what was unique about this corn is that it produces this mucilage, kind of this slimy, clear material. And we analyze the mucilage, and this mucilage provides provide sugar to the bacteria and also an environment that's very uh, important for the bacteria, for nitrogen-fixing bacteria, and that's a low-oxygen environment. So soybean roots or nodules, you see the little nodules of soybean roots, that's, you know, that's where this all happens. But in this system, in corn, it looks like the, this mucilage or this sugar substance that these roots exude provides that same environment needed for the bacteria to basically transfer nitrogen gas from the air to a soluble form that the plant can take up and use for growing. So it's a, it's a synergistic uh, relationship where um, the corn provides sugars for the bacteria to grow and the bacteria in turn says, here's some nitrogen. So now the bacteria living in this, I've, I've seen it reported as a goopy mucus on the, uh, the arrow roots. How then, how is that nitrogen then getting into the plant? These, these are literally roots in the air. That, that's, they, they uptake nutrients at right. every single node? Yeah, that's right. So that's exactly right. So we don't know yet that, you know, the same thing might be going on on the ground. We, we haven't, you know, that's for further research. Wow. Um, but it looks like, you know, we, you know, we tested it many, we tested it five different ways, actually. And there's many ways to measure nitrogen and none of them are perfect. And this is why we tried many ways and, and everyone said, hey, there's 30 to, you know, up to 80% of the nitrogen that the plant is accumulating is coming from the air. And, Do you know um, how the corn plant is producing the mucus or the, the mucilage? Well, we don't exactly, but I mean, plants, produce sugars all the time as you know as a source through photosynthesis so it's, it's capturing light energy and it's convert is basically converting um you know it's carbon which are made up of, you know into sugars and so some of those sugars are exuded by you know by the plant in this case and provide this perfect media or perfect environment for to attract basically nitrogen fixing bacteria so that they can you know they can there's an enzyme called nitrogenase and this enzyme does not work in an oxygen-rich environment. So what the mucus does is gives this low oxygen environment for th this enzyme to work in the bacteria to capture the air, you know, the nitrogen from the air, nitrogen gas from the air, convert it to a soluble form like ammonium, and that's what the, the plant can, can take up and then um, incorporate into itself to, to grow, essentially. They convert really to more sugars, is that's what, what it really does, wow. you know, for the plant to grow. So now, uh, if the plants are growing 20 feet tall and they're utilizing some of their sugar to, to bring in these uh, bacteria, what does a plant like this yield in grain while it's out there in the field sitting today? You know, we didn't even measure yield in grain. We just measured uh, biomass for different reasons. And, and the main reason we didn't do that is grain is sort of irrelevant in this case because this corn is not commercial corn that has been bred for, you know, that, you know, the corn has been bred since the 1940s, you know, to, to maximize grain yield over biomass yield, where this is really primitive corn. You know, it still produces nice years of corn, hmm. but it has a huge biomass. So the, 
what, what breeders um, or farmers like to have is what's called a low, a high harvest index. What harvest index is the ratio of grain yield to biomass yield. And, you know, as people, you know, that, that, that grain yield, and that could be, it could be, you know, anything that we want. We want to maximize grain yield with the least amount of plant, right? Sure. Give me, you know, the perfect plant would just grow, you know, a bunch of ears of corn and <laughs> with yeah. no green biomass, right? Yep. You know, and be, and it would grow in like in a month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We could grow uh, 12 crops a year. That would be ideal. Yeah. Yeah. So this one has a long ways to go. And, and that's what, you know, I want to emphasize. This is really the, you know, phase one. It's the first thing we wanted to do is say, okay, is this real? And, you know, and that's what the paper's about is we proved, you know, through, we did six experiments over two years and, you know, three locations. And, you know, and this was repeated over and over every time. So it was so it was like, OK, the phenotype is real. And then we have a proposed mechanism, you know, uh, with the bacteria and the mucilage uh, being there, which is very unique. And um, so there's still a long way to go to understand what are the genetic mechanisms um, you know, in the corn that, that, um, that attracts the bacteria, what are the bacteria or bacteria is, it's probably, my guess is a group of bacteria, uh, that's important. And maybe what is the environment, you know, that, that the corn has to grow in, you know, so, so the bacteria are really from the soil, they're not just floating around in the air, but all soils pretty much have nitrogen fixing bacteria, some are, and some associate with plants. Some are good, some are, you know, not as good as others. And it's just something we figured out in legumes like soybean, um, you know, what are the best rhizobium bacteria species that fix, you know, that work with soybean or it's different different species might work better with beans or, and so on, other legumes. So we still have a long way to go, but, the, but you know, the phase one, I think, you know, we have really nice evidence to say this is real. When you were down and doing the research in Oaxaca, did you have a chance to talk to the growers? How long have they noticed this particular variety of corn growing? Have they bred for more mucilage production, or did they just uh, just kind of disregard it as it was just a plant that grew here and they're using it? They've been using this for probably hundreds of years, and I, I don't know exactly, but I mean they've been growing this same variety, you know, for for years and years. And again, they weren't they weren't adding fertilizer or manure or anything like that, you know, to the ground. And it just, so that's what was really baffling to us when we first got there. It's like, how can this be? Absolutely. Now, from an evolutionary standpoint, an adaptation like this, the ability to create your own fertilizer would seem like it would be an incredible adaptation and it should have outtaken you know, every other variety of corn. Why do you think it's it's concentrated right right there in, in Oaxaca? Well, well, first of all, you know this is primitive corn. If we're going to find something like this, it's likely going to be in the state of Oaxaca because, as I mentioned, that's a center of biodiversity and domestication for corn. So probably the most diversity for corn in the world is right there in this state. And so what probably happened is people said, you know. I, I'm going to select maybe for high grain yield and maybe they were selected for high grain yield and didn't pay attention to these roots. And, you know, these roots were selected against, I would say probably, um, inadvertently. And, you know, we lost this trait into what we have commercial corn now. And so, you know, there's examples of that everywhere. And, but what breeders are doing more and more now is going back to the source of genetic diversity, like for corn in Oaxaca, 
and say, okay, what else is there? You know, is there disease resistance? Are there, you know, all sorts of traits, quality differences, you know, in this case, it was nitrogen. So they were probably lost, my guess, through domestication process or, you know, through the breeding process oh. without knowing, you know, why these roots were there. It was, you know, one would think, you know, this is probably, t- and for sure there's energy take, you know, expended by the corn plant to create these roots. Um, you know, so it's a cost benefit, right? Sure. And if I, and I bet the sugar, am I getting mucus, enough nitrogen to grow myself? Yeah. Yeah. And the goopy mucus probably makes harvest a little more difficult. Um, while you're harvesting, the, the mucus is not part of the ear, so so I would say not. No, not really. Okay. You, you don't you know, get you're not, you're not harvesting plant roots. goo by the time you walk through the field or anything. No, no, no. And the mucus comes out at an early, not at harvest time. It's earlier during the growing season. Gotcha. Um, now, you've proved it. You've established that this variety exists. Looking to the future over the next, say, five years, what steps are you going to be taking? What steps are plant breeders going to be looking at to to further study this corner or see where this trait can be applied? Well, as I mentioned, you know, then the, our next steps is really try to understand the mechanism. You know, how does this work and how can we transfer this to, you know, temperate corn, which is what we grow in the United States, you know, into a commercial system? You know, what are the components that we need to understand and what are the components that need to be transferred? Those genetic components, the bacterial components, and, and maybe the environmental components that this will work in. So there's still a long way to go, and it's probably in the more the 10-year range before I think we see any of this in the United States. But we certainly would like to see it commercialized, say, uh, in, the devel- in the developed world, if you want to say. And uh, we'd also like to see it commercialized with perhaps the biggest impact might be in the developing world, where fertilizer is not an option, it's not accessible, they're not, it's not affordable. So, you know, farmers in Africa, for example, have yields 10 times less than the yields we see here in the United States. So, and that's both due to genetics, but also due to access to fertilizer. You know, we know plants need nitrogen fertilizer to grow. I mean, that's just, that's biology. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, whether they're getting it from the soil or from the air or, you know, from fertilizer or from bacteria living in mucus, anything is uh, is needed and advantageous for that crop. Uh, Dr. Van Dynes, before we let you go, if farmers or, or any listeners want to kind of follow along with the research on this project, where should they go or how can we kind of stay tuned in to what you guys are doing? Well, we ask, you know, like we did with the paper, we like to... Uh you know, just go onto the UC Davis website. You know, if we have big, you know, an- announcements forward, we usually like to uh, have a press release or something like that uh, on the UC Davis website. That's probably the best way to keep track. Perfect. Dr. Alan Van Dynes, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about such an interesting discovery. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, Delaney, there you go. We're making new discoveries in agriculture, even with a millennia-old crop. It's very, very cool. That's um, interesting, Mike. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's nothing quite like spending a Friday talking mucus, you know? <laughs> Ew, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, nothing quite like it. No, but, and, you know, listeners, I think this is the first time we've ever talked mucus on the podcast, but if you want to verify it and listen to our past podcasts, you can do that, Delaney, by going where? Absolutely. You can head to our website, agnosdaily.com, find all of our past episodes there. You can also... 
find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for at Ag News Daily. And we've got to ask for your help, listeners. We're trying to do a little bit of podcast research. So we've got a survey there. If you look on our Facebook and Twitter pages, I think they should be pinned on both. But it's just a quick, it'll take you four minutes, and you can be entered to win an Ag News Daily Bluetooth speaker and earbuds. Fantastic. Well, with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.